Munger said the best thing a human being can do is to help someone else to know more. Everyone has something to teach. Everyone can participate in as a student and as a teacher at different points in their lives. There's always somebody who's one step ahead of you to learn from and always somebody who's one step behind you that you can help. I think constantly learning keeps us humble and keeps life exciting. Teaching is rewarding. The fact that we can all kind of be a part of it is really fun. In this episode, I talked to Eric Jorgensen, who is the author of one of my favorite books. It's actually the book that I have gifted the most recently, and that is The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which is a distillation of uh, the wisdom writing podcast episodes of uh, of Naval. And so Eric did this awesome project where he compiled all of this, edited down into a book. And uh, we talked about that at the end of the episode, but throughout the, throughout the episode, we talked about online education. Um, Leverage. We spent a lot of time talking about leverage, which is sort of this thing that uh, Naval has really made the centerpiece to a lot of his content that he's produced. And then Eric has gone even further and produced a course on and talked about so much great stuff. So really important concepts that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I'll get out of the way and we'll just dive in. Eric, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. You're you're on like the Mount Rushmore of heroes of like bootstrappers turned like content creators turned bootstrappers. So like I'm I'm super excited to be talking to you in any context. This is gonna be fun. Well, good. And now now I'm curious who else is on uh, Mount Rushmore. I knew you were gonna ask me that, and I don't I, I don't know. I'm not prepared for it, but <laughs> <laughs> we can start photoshopping it up later and like post. Yeah, it. exactly. That'll be a really good use of both of our time. <laughs> um, you have this tweet. Uh, all right. Oh, actually, there's a specific tweet that I'll get into later. But like reading through all of your stuff online, you are obsessed with education, specifically online education. You've got um, Course Correctly, where you're like reviewing online courses with a friend of yours. You've got like, there's a lot going on, and you truly care a lot about the details of online education. And I'm curious, like, why? Where does that come from? Where does the interest turn into obsession? Yeah, I think, I think like, so long term, I think like going to Mars is awesome and curing cancer is awesome and like solving world hunger is awesome. But education is the main is like the variable with the biggest coefficient into all of those things over the long term. Um, and so like all of us who are alive right now are kind of like, oh, God, we got to solve all these problems that are like affecting us. Um, but if we just kind of look at the species over like a few hundred years or a few thousand years, like our ability to educate ourselves and then the next generation is like a huge, huge heavily weighted variable, um, I guess, into like the outcome that we achieve over a long period of time and like how we can affect that. Um, and I think like there's no, you know, the, the, the first principles kind of like where's the laws of physics limit this is like we have the ability to be so much better at education than we are. And we are, there's some specific context where we're incredible educators. Like our doctors are incredibly well-educated, like the rigor of like a pilot's education or a doctor's education compared to, um, you know, somebody who maybe like a writer, uh, like different creative pursuits or to an MBA, like right. is just, we're just missing easy opportunities to kind of like become really like significantly better. Um, and the internet lowers the cost of that and increases the accessibility of it. And so I think we're going to see like a really kind of cool transformation of that over our lifetimes. Um, I was excited to kind of see it, see it come together. Yeah. So what I hear in that is there's individual pursuits, you know, that will like advance civilization, you know, in like one very specific and highly effective area. But then education is like the rising tide for everything of like, if you can 
help people teach well, you know, learn well, uh, any of those things and make those, those tools and content, everything available, then that can go in any, any and every direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Munger said, like the best thing a human being can do is to like help someone else to know more. And I think that's a really, like everyone has something to teach and we are all trying to learn. And, um, it's something that everyone can participate in as a student and as a teacher at different points in their lives. And there's always somebody who's like one step ahead of you to learn from and always somebody's one step behind you that you can help, um, kind of all the way, you know, through your, through your life. Um, so I think it's a really interesting thing. And I think constantly learning keeps us, keeps us humble, um, and keeps life exciting and teaching is fun and rewarding and a way to kind of solidify the things that you're learning. Um, it's just a really, it's an exciting thing. And we, and like the fact that we can all kind of be a part of it is, um, is really fun and that the internet is making it much more accessible for everybody, um, and change transforming it, right? Like that it can become just in time that you can learn while you're doing, while you're like in the context of a project that you're already trying to accomplish, um, is really cool and, and kind of a new thing. And I, the rate of change is just so crazy that like the rate of learning has to match it. Uh, and we're, I don't think we're quite ready for that yet. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there, but what about when someone is, maybe when someone's st- starting a newsletter, starting an online, like coming into this world of online business and audiences and all of that, what are some of those things that you're really trying to teach them that are like those two or three really pivotal things where you're like, when you understand this, you will see the world differently. Yeah. So I think there's the, the first thing I, I mean, if somebody's at zero, like the first thing I would say is like, start doing like you, you will learn much better in the context of doing, right. um, which is not a thing I used to appreciate. And I actually wasted a lot of time, like trying to learn before I did. I think you had a tweet at one point, I think you were saying like, um, I'm trying to remember if you were like, find yourself reading something for the third time or like learning about something for the third time, like it's time to start doing instead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it feels good to learn and like, feel like you're getting closer to knowing how to do it. But like learning how to do something is a cheap way to get a fraction of the dopamine of actually doing it, but it doesn't really get you that much closer to doing it, especially if you're on like your second or third rep through. Um, so yeah, I, I would think like, you know, start that newsletter, like send an email to like five people, throw up a Google form, like it's really, um, it's easy to get started. And when you encounter a roadblock, like go learn how to remove or overcome that roadblock. Um, but don't try to anticipate too many steps out, just like get working. Um, even if you do end up down a dead end, like that proof of work and effort will help you kind of contextualize when you hear the right answer or when you go, you know, find a friend or mentor or teacher and say like, Hey, look, I tried this thing and like, it didn't work. And I don't know why, um, like that happened to me this morning. I was like working on this side project and like, I was like, I'm in a dead end and I don't know what to do. And I called a friend. He's like, here's what I would have told you if you talked to me two weeks ago. And I was part of me was like, shit, that was a, that was a like expensive mistake time-wise. Um, but it's also like a lesson, an acute lesson learned. Um, so I'm going to remember that one, uh, much more. I like that idea of working towards something like until you get stuck. Um, it's probably 2011, 2010, somewhere in there. I was really getting into designing and building iPhone applications, which I didn't have a strong background as a developer. I was, I knew the design side, it, but you know, I was like objective C, like let's learn this, let's dive in. And 
one app that I was building, I would code until I got stuck and could not figure it out in one direction. And I'm like, okay, but then there's also this other feature, you know, I'd code that way until I got stuck and like stack overflow couldn't help me anymore. And, you know, and I do that in like three different directions. So I'm like, okay, I actually can't really meaningfully work on this anymore before I uh, either get help or substantially level up my code knowledge. And so then on like a Saturday, I would go over to a coworker's house and say like, okay, here's the areas that I'm stuck. Yeah. You know, and he'd been developing iOS apps for yeah, a couple of years. Well, still pretty early. So yeah, I guess two years, three years at that point. Um, and he'd be like, okay, I see where you're stuck, but let's take a step back. Let me under, like, let me explain number types to you. Do you know about floats and integers? And, and I'd be like, no, be like, all right. Well, computer science 101, you know, like yeah, some of those things. But it was really important to go far enough to where I got stuck myself um, rather than just being like, I don't know, I need somebody to teach me how to build iPhone apps. Yeah, that like, it, it, yeah, it's a similar thing. So when you were, were you writing that book at the exact same time that you were like learning that stuff um, yourself for the first time? So I had learned the design side pretty extensively and that's what the book was about. Okay. Um, and so this is probably a year before I wrote the book. Um, and so I had been doing a lot of the design side and then I was also trying to do the development because something, there was this weird debate that happened of like, is it better to be a designer or a developer? Yeah. Which is the dumbest debate you could ever get into, but you'd see it like popping up all throughout the internet. And I remember thinking on one hand, like, well, obviously it's better to be a designer because I am a designer. <laughs> but then I had this moment where I thought about it and I was like, wait, if a developer builds something, it will function, but it'll be ugly. If a designer designs something, it will look pretty and it won't do jack. Yeah. <laughs> like it won't, it's not actually useful. And so like in that realization, I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to like, if I want to keep doing like indie projects on my own, I'm going to learn to code. And that's when I got into that side. And then probably a year later, I wrote the book on uh, designing iPhone applications. Yeah, that that whole period, every every designer was trying to become a developer, and every developer was kind of yeah. trying to become a designer at like the same time. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, let's see, where were we going with that? Uh, oh, particular things that so that people should learn. So we're talking about like the first thing is actually do it. Yeah, just like start. Like yeah, start putting skin in the game. Like set a goal, set a mission. Yeah you know, open up a page, build something tiny, no matter how small, like just start doing before you start learning. Cause learning like as important as education is like, you can spend your whole life learning and no time doing. And like, right. it's a lot like a designer designing an iPhone app that is like a very pretty wireframe. It's like, wow, you have a lot of PhDs. Did you ever do anything with all those? <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, nope. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. One of the other things that you're like, really obsessed with that, that I'm also obsessed with. And I, I love uh, talking about, which would probably be what I would put on the list of like the second thing to teach people uh, would be leverage and just how, how that works. I feel like so much of your personal brand online now is tied into like being the guy talking about leverage, which is amazing because more people need to learn that. So how do you think about leverage and, and what are the parts that fascinate you the most? Yeah, I think it's, I think leverage is super important to know. I mean, I think everybody should know the mental model at the very least, especially when they're starting out. Um, even if they don't know a ton of the mechanics, it's like compounding, right? Like you're told you're supposed to like save money, but you're not really sure like what the point is unless you get compounding. And then you're kind of like, Oh, like I should be saving and investing because it means I'll be able to retire like 20 years earlier. And leverage is kind of the same way. Like 
when you're first starting out, you're trying to figure out like what you want to do and how you want to do it and how to kind of plan for growth in your career over time. And if you don't understand, if you're, if you are blind to leverage and like where that leads you, you're going to end up down a little bit of a dead end or in a spot where, you know, you're maybe in a job where you're just trading time for money or you're in a job that's extremely unlevered and you end up feeling like you'll never, you know, earn more than $60,000 a year because right. you don't have a way to apply leverage to what you're doing. So I think like, it's, it's really interesting to see all the people. And I think you were a prime example of this who kind of like, without ever probably using the word leverage, you like intuited what it was and how to get more of it and build it over time the last like 10 years. Um, so I, I, like leverage from my perspective and the way I kind of organize and, and share thoughts around this um, kind of comes in four forms, which is tools, product, people, and capital. Um, so tools being like, anything from a hammer to a chainsaw to Zapier um, product being any form of like capturing and preserving your judgment or experience in code, in media, you know, we're, we're recording a product right now, um, mm -hmm. but it could be a blog post. It could be a book. Um, it could be a movie and then working into people. So everything from like Fiverr. So task-based labor up through like building a whole team um, and capital kind of comes in a variety of forms, but like usually money. Um, so all of those kind of things build on each other and you can sort of trade them for each other and you'll end up with like constraints and bottlenecks and things. But like over time, um, you know, you go from starting a newsletter to writing a book, to building a course, to building a software platform. Um, and you go from, you know, some very specific task-based help uh, to maybe a part-time assistant, to maybe hiring an agency, to maybe hiring people full-time. Um, and the capital grows and the margins grow and like you sort of increasingly reinvest in higher margins of leverage that are more self-sufficient and longer levers so that they can move, you know, have quote unquote heavier loads, um, and help you kind of accomplish more with the time and experience and judgment that you have. Yeah. It's the simplest example of that. Like in my life would be going from designing iPhone applications for other people, mm -hmm. you know, which is very one-to-one -one. like conveniently it's a high paid skill so that's yeah better than other activities but you know it, it's still not there and then teach you know creating a writing a book creating a course teaching that now there's real leverage because money and time are disconnected uh, and then going up from there would be what did i do now i mean i guess the next thing was like creating that leverage from software in a recurring way or like the number of people that are going to buy a course or consume content compared to the number of people that now use convert it. And the other thing is the, like you said, the compounding effect, uh, that's the magic in SaaS and the recurring, you know, the recurring business is like, you don't even have to have that good of a growth rate, but it compounding over time and continuing to do it for a long time, then it gets to the point that the leverage is just pretty incredible. And like now, you know, 350,000 people use ConvertKit and it's like, Oh, well, that's sort of a different scale than, you know, the, the, like the hours I put in designing an iPhone app for, you know, an individual client. Yeah. And it would have been, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I don't know the, the details of the story there, but I think it would have been really tough to just make that huge leap, right? Like, even if you knew you wanted to end up building a SaaS app, you know, in the high margin business, like 
even if you knew that that was your destination, would you have been able to just kind of like jump straight there without some of those intermediate steps? I, I don't think there think so. There's so many lessons that you have to learn along the way of like, well, so I write about this a little bit in my blog post, uh, the ladders of wealth creation mm-hmm. is like making some of these leaps between steps of like me selling you on something one-to-one that there's a certain amount of skills there. I have to understand why you would want to buy it and other things like that. But then me getting you to go to a website and buy the same thing without me talking to you one, there's real leverage in that because now like a thousand people or one person could read the website and it works the same either way, but it's really hard. Like that is a whole skill in building trust and copywriting and understanding and all of that. Yeah. And so when you're like, I'm going to go from uh, client work to a SaaS application, there's like a thousand of those skills you know, there's probably actually like 50 if we were to break it down, you know, but um, it feels like a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a thousand. And that's why like, it's so insurmountable. And if you want to try to learn all of those things in a single step, you you can, there's plenty of people who do it, but then don't be surprised when that step, instead of you're like, Oh, it should only take six months and it takes six years instead. Like just know that, yeah, cause there was six years worth of lessons that you chose to do in one step. Whereas other people, chose to do it in incremental uh, gains. Yeah. And and in my experience has been that each kind of one of those steps is gives you increasing resources and confidence and skills to like know right. that you're that like the next one is in reach. Right. Um, I actually use your ladders of wealth creation as an example in the book. It's like a, or in the course, the leverage course, it's a very similar kind of framework to like, Hey, look, leverage is like this big, important idea, and it's going to define your life if you let it in the same way that compounding can. But one, you have to be willing to start small and be patient, but look at how we can connect the dots going forward. Um, but you do have to respect the idea and kind of pay homage to it in each little decision that you make for years before you start to see that payoff. Um it, just like compounding, right? Like the, it's a painful. You watch that graph for so long, look really flat until it takes off. And when you can layer, um, actually I have some like graphs in the, uh, in the course that show like, you know, here's the margin of a book. Here's the margin of a course. Here's the margin. And when you layer these products onto each other with increasing skill and increasing leverage in each one, it, the top of the graph looks exponential, but you can break it down into like what's actually stacked up on top of itself. And it's this very similar idea to the ladders of wealth creation. Yeah, that that really resonates. And I think one thing that you reminded me of in there is like the leverage of relationships. Mm-hmm. Because it takes so many relationships to build the SaaS company, you know, not only in who you need to, like you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the cat, like uh, human leverage, you know, like getting, wrangling a whole bunch of people and getting them to go in, in a single direction. You know, if you have relationships and reputation, that's so much easier to do. And, you know, and so if you're jumping right into that, people are like, no, I don't want to come work for you for less money for, you know, any of these things. I don't even want to work for you for more money. Like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, but in, in compounding reputation um, mm-hmm. from like the first, you know, the first little iPhone app to the book, to the building audience then when it comes time to do this thing, you're like, Hey, will you buy this? People are like, Oh, I trust you from this. Like I was just having a conversation with, uh, Justin Jackson, um, over Twitter DMS. And so he's the founder of transistor who we use to host this podcast and doing amazing things. 
he's actually the longest running paying customer of ConvertKit. No, no way. And I know him, you know, from like blogging, like that whole world, you know, yeah. eight, nine years ago. Um, and like that relationship has been super valuable, I think for both of us, but it started, you know, way back here and is now, you know, valuable to both of us as we run software companies. So I'm curious for you, like, what's your take on, on relationships and, and how those plan to leverage and compounding? Naval originally called it labor leverage. And I think I reframed it as people because I think that's so, I think what you said is exactly true. And people leverage is so much broader than labor, right? Like if you, if you're stuck in that. Labor implies that like I founded Walmart and now I've got a hundred thousand, you know, that it's permission that I'm compensating people directly, that it's like all or nothing, that it's, you know, you just kind of have that image of like people, you know, dragging stones around building the period pyramids. And you're like, but today people leverage looks much more like a network of kind of trusted, like high credibility people. It looks more like an audience. Um, and that's not, it's not compensated leverage, right? Like some of those influential, like highly leveraged people on earth are just people with big fan bases. And that's all kind of like double opt in. People are expressing themselves through their dedication to a person, an artist, a, you know, a writer, a musician. Um, or so there's the, there's kind of like the audience fan base. And then there's the, um, kind of what you're alluding to the like friendship, credibility, network support, and then, and then all the team and people that actually like whose skills and vision and belief you need to kind of build a product that takes more than one person's skill set. Um, you know, we talked about building those 50 skills, but like practically what happens is, you know, you build 10 or 15, and you find other people with 10 or 15 and you kind of combine them into like, Hey, I've got this credibility and this experience and this audience and this product idea. And they're like, Oh, great. I have this engineering expertise and this, you know, this credibility and I can build a team and I can make architecture decisions. And somebody else comes in with like, you know, some, some content expertise and like those, you, you are all each other's leverage. Like that's the other thing with people leverage is like, um, leverage has a little bit of a, there's this connotation that it's like to get leverage over somebody like the, the mafia kind of oh, leverage. Yeah. Um, and I think that some people kind of hear people leverage and they're like, Oh, ugh, eh, I don't like it. Um, which is totally fair. Like this is not about coercion or persuasion or anything. This is about like, we are all using each other's skills and expertise and like, you know, you are writing a book to serve your readers. They are buying a book to serve, you know, to reward you for that. And like, they're getting 10 years of your experience for $40, like that's a bargain of a lifetime. Um, so there, there's a lot of, um, you know, I think we need to get comfortable with that. You know, we're all, we're all serving somebody. We're all somebody's customer. We're all, you know, somebody's, uh, somebody's chef, somebody's, somebody's waiter, somebody's writer, somebody's entertainer. Like, yeah. And I think even on that relationship side of having the ability to email someone, um, and then, you know, have them say like, yes, I'll make an introduction to this person or, or like you and I have built leverage in like personal brands where in both ways, right. I'm emailing you and say, Hey, will you come on my podcast? Cause I'm a fan of your work. And you're saying like, yes, I would love to come on your podcast because I'm also a fan of your work. Yeah. I'm a fan of your work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so that's because we've both built leverage in those areas from like ultimately what started with writing and teaching and, you know, in some way, and then that just compounding over time. Yeah. And there's, you know, one of the questions I get from people is like, do I have to like go be a public internet person in order to like build leverage? Um, and I, I, no, it's like the short answer. I think there's, 
you know, every like industry probably has their own version of this. Like you still have reputation, you still have credibility, you still have network. Um, you know, you don't have to be out there writing blog posts in order to build leverage through network and friendships and experience and, um, all those things. Although there is a unique dynamics to like an uncapped audience, like worldwide audience, um, that I think is worth people paying attention to. What are some of those other things, right? So if someone's saying, I don't want to be the public internet person, which I think is something that that people wrestle with a lot, especially today, as you see it, like it's always been a really high upside thing, but we're also seeing like, it can be fairly high downside, you know, especially if you don't have, um, a thick skin or, you know, like if you, you, there's more to lose now. Yeah. There was always a lot to lose, but I think maybe there's more examples of, of the negative side of things. I'm, I'm curious what other types of leverage you would point people to when they're thinking of like, I don't like the whole audience blogging, podcasting thing. Like I'll, I'll stay as a reader or a listener. Thanks. Yeah. I think so. There's, there's definitely, there's people who are increasingly doing it anonymously. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's the pseudonym, there's the anonymous route. What do you think about that? I support it. I support it. Yeah. Would you like, have you considered doing it yourself of like, as you, you know, spinning up something? Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I've always thought about like, uh, if you had to just like drop a match and like get rid of your identity and like start over tomorrow anonymously, like what would it be like? How would you do it? What could you do? Like, I think that's like a fun mental exercise. Yeah. Um, and I think people are doing, I saw some, I saw a guy, I don't know if it was a guy actually tweet the other day. He's like, I just like abandoned my public persona with 30,000 followers and like started over with an anonymous account. And like, I'll never tell you who I was, but like, here we go. I'm like unplugging and plug you back in. Um, and I think for some people that's like, I think it'll be increasingly, uh, common in the crypto world. Like we're, we see a bunch of that already. I mean, there's like, anonymous accounts at the head of like a billion dollar Dow treasury. Like that's crazy. Um, but makes sense. It's also like, I was, I was thinking about this earlier. There's like, have you read the sovereign individual and like all the logic of violence? And it's like a very fashionable kind of like crypto book to read. Yeah. A little um, bit. It, it basically says like the logic of violence determines the structure of society. Um, and, and you can kind of get into this thing where like, if, no one knows who you are. Like the safest thing you can be is anonymous um, in, in a world where like anybody could show up at your house at any time. Right. Like the, the safest thing to do is just have nobody know who you are and where you are. Um, Cause if they know you're in control of a billion dollar Dow treasury, um, that's not yeah. a good thing. Like the same, like there's no physical thing that can protect you or it's much more expensive than just being digitally anonymous and untrackable um, to the extent that you can. So yeah, I think that'll be increasingly common. I think like it's a very simple solution to kind of like workplace equity and fairness is just like your your track record is associated with a pseudonym, um, not not a real world identity or name or photo. And like that's fine. Um, I would have no problem hiring anonymous people. I kind of do it accidentally online already through marketplaces, right? Right. Um, like, I don't know if the person I hire on Upwork is their real name. I don't know if that's a real photo. Like, I just know that they have a bunch of good reviews and I pay them to do the work and they do it. And that's great. It's interesting to think about like people doing that with audiences. And and there's plenty of examples that we come to like, you know, a Twitter account like Ram Capital or, or you know, there's, there's plenty of them. Um, and I don't think it really holds you back. 
like in some ways I wonder if it speed things like speeds up audience growth or, or leverage in some of those ways. So, okay. Ways that it's harder, right? I can't be like, Hey Eric, Hey, you know, David who like text a bunch of friends and be like, Hey, yeah. like I wrote this post, will you promote it? That kind of thing for, for people who are, yeah. For people who are starting from zero without those friends and connections, it's probably, that was probably a wash. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's definitely a challenge if you already have them. I think it's a little harder to trust somebody. Like it takes me a little bit right. longer to like build a mental model of an anonymous person. Um, but you right. can, I mean, advantages, you can build a brand that's much more extreme than a real world person is willing to be. Right. Um, I don't know. There's always been like joke accounts that are just like right. crazy things, um, that, that tend to grow really quickly. What was the, like, uh, in the startup space, fake Grimlock? Yeah, that's who I was thinking. That's, that's the name I was trying okay. to come up with. Yeah, the, like, caps lock dinosaur monster guy. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, startup, startup L. Jackson was a really famous one. Right. Um, uh, yeah, and it's like, those accounts build credibility, like, huge credibility. Um, and I think, I don't know, I don't have a good example off the top of my head of somebody who's, like, turned that into a, a really big business, but, like, I think there's plenty of people doing doing great through anonymous accounts. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, once it pro probably is harder to get traction in some ways, but then what you're talking about of being able to take strong stances. You know, the internet both rewards and punishes strong stances. Like if, if you're out here going like, you know, leverage is, is is nice. Like if you can get it, I don't know. You know, you're like all soft about it. No one's going to pay any attention. But if you're like, hey, this is the thing you have to understand. Here's why it matters and all that. People yeah. will hate you for it, but they'll really pay attention. They'll read the posts. They'll share it. So that's a thing I'm like, that's a card I'm pretty unwilling to play because I'm like a normal person who wants to actually right. represent myself as a normal person online. And like, it is pretty, I think it's kind of trivially easy to win the like outrage retweet game. And there's people who just like tweet hot takes in deliberately clumsy ways to like get the reach of people like quote tweeting and like dunking on them but like all the time they're getting more followers and people show up to defend them and i'm just like unwilling to do that even though it clearly obviously like works for gaining a bunch of followers um but like if you were to set off it as an anonymous account to do that like easy right nothing to lose like that's your brand from the beginning okay so we were before we went off the anonymous direction we, we were talking about um like other types of leverage that you know aren't isn't relying on on that audience or, or reputation product is leverage and a very common like starting place right so anything you can record um you know I, at the end of the course i kind of try to codify these like 10 laws of leverage that's like th these little triggers to like remind you and like turn this into instinctive behaviors um and one of them is don't repeat yourself record yourself so when you hear yourself telling the same story over and over again like you should be writing it down you should be right. recording it as a video you should do it as a podcast you should whatever um and i think it's easy to underestimate the power of like creating something that can serve hundreds or thousands of people in parallel and into the future um right and like you know people make a youtube video and it only gets like 100 views and they're kind of like bummed about it I'm like like do the math on that like roi like that is a miracle like if a hundred people listen to this podcast probably way more are going to but if a hundred people listen to this podcast from one hour of our time like that's a crazy miracle they couldn't possibly have happened a hundred people in a room and i'd be like sweating but like five thousand people are going to listen to this 
And that's absolutely wild. Um, so I think like product leverage at almost any scale is like a miracle that we see every day that we have just forgotten is a miracle. Um, and when you are prolific with that, even if you don't like you get good at it fast and that leverage has its own kind of compounding. Um, and, and in a way being prolific is like its own form of credibility. Like if you make a thousand podcasts, like you're probably not going to suck by your thousandth podcast, right. no matter how slowly <laughs> you improve, you just can't not get better. Well, like Seth Godin has this thing that he says of like, I will come on anyone's podcast. Yeah. You just have to have recorded at least a hundred episodes, you know, and partially because he's going like, I want you, I want to make sure that you're consistent with it. I don't want to be your third yeah. guest. I want to be your fifth guest. You know, like most podcasts die after, you know, probably three episodes. Um, and so he's like saying, I want to, help you, you know, I, I like encourage that, but like, here's the bar that you have to get to. And hopefully you won't be a terrible interviewer by the time you get to a hundred episodes, you know? And so yeah. there's both credibility and, and all that that comes with being prolific. Yeah. That's a great rule. And then you're not evaluating it. Then you're not thinking about it. Then there's going to be, there's certain to be like some sort of guaranteed minimum audience probably by the time they get to a hundred episodes. Um, yeah, that's, that's really smart. Something else, uh, on productizing, lever you know or, or product as a leverage side of things that maybe it made me think of is we have a internal podcast for the convertkit team um that is each team member being interviewed about their life story uh, by another team member. oh that's great and so you're like out going on your run and you're thinking about like charlie who's our uh, creative director and you're like listening to her life story and so there's a bunch of, she records that once um for an hour you know yeah and then now the 67 other people on the team and then everyone who joins from today forward, yeah. like listens to that. And then now when I sit down and like, or anyone sits down and talks to Charlie, then it's just like, Oh, tell me about growing up in, you know, Brunei and like this whole thing, like we can shortcut so much for that because I yeah. listened to her story and she's listened to mine. And like, we have that's, that. That's a brilliant application. That's a brilliant, there's so many, like so many, onboardings have the like oh like go get coffee with the whole team and so like right. that just breaks so fast as soon as you have like an onboarding class of five and it's like what i have five coffees this week like i'm gonna spend 10 hours like <laughs> yeah hanging out with new members of the team every week um but that's brilliant and then you can just kind of wait until you're like oh i have my first meeting with charlie next week uh like i better go get some context hear episode. what it's like yeah listen to her episode hear what it's like to meet her here here like where she's coming from, what she does here, what her goal is. Um, that's super brilliant. I love that. You said there's 10 rules uh, or like those key things you're reminding uh, people of. What are a few others of those? Oh, okay. Um, so one I have that's like the one I probably have to tell myself the most often um, is, is do the things only you can do. Um, I find myself like it, it, do the work only you can do is a really good way to remind yourself like what's my highest and best use. Um, how much stuff am I doing that like either doesn't need to be done, someone else can do for me or could be automated, could be, you know, delegated, whatever. Um, that one is, I catch myself doing that a lot. Um, and then sometimes I'm like, no, I'm kind of enjoying this. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, but usually the stuff that only you can do, um, is the highest impact, like, longest term outcome stuff. It's usually like right. talking to customers, giving a like 
creating a new sort of standard operating procedure, like figuring out, you know, some sort of high leverage, like comp situation, um, which speaking of, I like have listened to maybe two or three separate interviews about your profit sharing system. And I absolutely adore it. I think it's brilliant. I love kind of collecting the stories of like Newcore Steel and Glen Air. Yeah. And like, I feel like you are in that lineage in an amazing way. Well, thanks. We'll, we'll give it some time to see how it all plays out. But <laughs> those are also the kind of stories that I, that I like to collect. Yeah. Um, I'm curious in the, in like the collection of stories side of things, like what are some of the story, like favorite examples or stories of leverage, you know, or different types of leverage applied that you are your go-tos? I think, um, I really like this like example of, um, real estate agents. So I've, I've worked with the real estate agents a lot over the last few years and I kind of like Naval uses them as an example in the book of just being a high leverage job because your inputs and your outputs are disconnected. Most realtors are not actually it's using that. Like they're not actually adding leverage, but the ability is there for any of them to add it. Um, if they, if they choose, it's really independent contracting sales job. Right. Um, right. And most sales jobs have this. It's just everybody can relate to realtor. So one, one lesson I have in the course takes like realtors, uh, four different realtors that are operating from like the first one is just like a very normal, basic, you know, linear sort of time and money relationship. She does like 10 clients a year, makes 50,000 a year. Okay. N normal, normal day job. The like best realtor in a typical office makes like $400,000 a year. Um, and it's usually because they have like a full-time personal assistant or two, a transaction coordinator. They're usually spending money on advertising. They're usually spending money on, um, tools like upgraded tools and systems. Um, and they have like enough of a, um, more speaking of like opt-in people leverage, they have past clients who are driving word of mouth for them. Right. Um, so like that is a really that is a high leverage thing that people don't think of as leverage because it's not labor. It's not even really audience. It's just like happy customer base. Um, and then you get into the order of magnitude above that. And you've got the realtor who's like the number one realtor in the city. And they've got a team of 50 agents below them that are all doing the stuff that the best agents in the office are doing. They're all paying for personal assistance. They're all paying for marketing. And that person is like coaching and managing and recruiting all of those agents and building a, te a whole team of them and a culture that helps those agents become better and earns a percentage of all of their earnings. Uh, right. And this guy, uh, I, I was wondering how far this went. And so I looked up who's the number one real estate agent in the country. And it's this guy in Texas named Ben Caballero, Caballero okay. I think is his name. And he started out as like a normal realtor and he kind of found his way into this like a niche of new home builders. And so he's got now, uh, this team, like, a, I don't know, a team of dozens under him. And like half of them kind of work on these partnerships with new home builders who are companies that build like dozens to hundreds to maybe thousands of homes per year. And they have to figure out how to sell them in bulk. And so they just like give him like, here's a thousand listings, like go sell all these houses. Right. And then he's got a software team that is building a platform to actually like manage the inventory of all these houses and all of their listings and all their sales. And then like, so he, he's basically like a founder of a software company with a BD team and like designers and marketers and engineers, but he's still functionally a realtor and he earns commissions as a realtor on thousands of homes a year. And he, I, my napkin math is that this guy makes like a hundred million dollars a year. That could be like 
50 million high or low, but like it's right. crazy either way. And is the ultimate illustration of like, if you add system, if you systematically add leverage of these four types, you can go from a very normal job uh, to an absolutely insane kind of like founder situation. The mindset and the instinct to like add leverage where you can and in a safe kind of um, sustainable way that's manageable, like is a huge, huge difference. You have to find your way into a place where you don't have that ceiling and you can reinvest in that leverage and like you get the benefits of that. Um, and there's a lot of traps or places where that's not as true. Um, but if you can find that place and if you can develop that mindset and like get into it as a habit and then go for, you know, 10 or 20 years, you can get to some crazy, crazy places. Yeah. It's that, that leverage plus compounding, but yeah. the two of them together are pretty powerful. You have another tweet. You talked about blockbuster. Um, he said Netflix didn't kill blockbuster being over leveraged killed blockbuster. Um, I'm curious some of the, like the downsides of leverage or when people misuse it or, uh, yeah, don't understand what they're playing with it. Yeah. Yeah. Leverage. Um, I mean, the lever goes both ways, right? Like levers push back. Um, and that's actually like, so leverage law eight and nine leverage law number eight is live by the lever, die by the lever. Like if this is the game you choose to play, like understand that it can hurt you. Um, and leverage law number nine is like leave room for things to go wrong. Um, which is just kind of the like normal person way that all the like the investing nerds would say margin for margin of error. Um, yeah. but there's a difference between being over leveraged and being super leveraged. So like you can have really, really long levers, right? Like Warren Buffett has really long levers. Um, he's got billions of dollars. He's got multi, many companies. He's got, you know, 250,000 employees. Um, but if those levers push back on him, they're not dangerous amounts of leverage and he can absorb that pushback um, kind of with equanimity because it's not just because it's long doesn't mean the travel is high and doesn't mean there's like a huge force pushing on the other side. Um, and so there are people who, you know, if you make $50 an hour and you hire an assistant for $40 an hour and try to outsource your whole job and then like there's no room for things to go wrong. And if there's pushback on that other side of that lever, you know, your revenue changes, your costs change, something happens, like all of a sudden you're in deep shit because that lever has pushed back too hard on you. You don't have the like capacity to absorb that blow. Um, and now all of a sudden this lever is like launch you into space and, and you're done. Yeah, gross margin matters when you're thinking yeah. about how, like to what degree you can use leverage. And, and as you layer things on top, right? Like if you're making a hundred dollars an hour, $10 an hour assistant makes a ton of sense. But if you hire five of them, like that stacks. And so all of a sudden, so like you've got to run the math and, and be cognizant of all the other levers. Um, things like product leverage, like we talked about the risk of being a public person. And so like, that's less quantitative, but it's still intangible and it's still a form of risk. Um, but you can layer a lot of those on top of each other before you have like financial risk associated with that. Um, but that's not true. You know, when you're, when you're playing like leverage trading games and like, you know, I've, I've seen plenty of people lose way more money than they thought was possible because they were using leverage that they did not understand. And when those get multiplied out, things can move really quickly. Um, and leverage just, leverage just gets you more of what you're already getting. Right. It doesn't change your outcome. So like if 
things are going poorly and you add a bunch of money to it and make things happen poorly faster and more <laughs> often then like you have not done yourself any favors um except to maybe make it more clear what you were already getting uh so yeah right. it's a very um you know I, i'd say to anybody who's thinking about the course like this is not for people who do not know what they're doing um or do not aren't confident in the direction that they're heading and aren't confident like investing money to get more of the results that are already getting um the the art yep. of leverage is for like getting more of what you're already getting yeah that makes a lot of sense uh, something else that i want to turn to talk to a bit is the the book the almanac of naval ravikant which is has replaced um well first rework and then anything you want as my most gifted books oh uh, nice. so thanks for thanks for writing that uh it's just one of those things where i'm like talking to someone, whether it's a sibling or a friend or someone else, I'm like, this will change your world. <laughs> like this is the most condensed way I can get them to think in a completely different way. So thank you for doing all of the work to, to put that together. Uh, I'm curious how that started, like what, what inspired that project and then how did you start working on it? Yeah. I mean that, um, the inspiration came really from a podcast that Naval did with Shane Parrish, um, on the knowledge project. It was a, awesome interview. I listened to it two or three times. Um, and I was a little like, I'd been following Naval for 10 years, right? Like I, since uh, 2009, maybe when he like started writing on venture hacks, um, which is like still an awesome blog. Um, I've been following him and learning all these, you know, what are, he was mostly talking about startups and investing for a long time. And this interview with, with Shane Parrish was the first time he kind of talked about like some of his, um, some of his like principles for how to build wealth and some of his principles that he had been like kind of teaching himself about the philosophies of, and practice and habits of happiness and building happiness and that you are totally in control of your own happiness. Um, and I thought this was such a good podcast. Um, and I love podcasts. I listen to them a lot, but I'm also very aware that like most people don't listen to podcasts. And even if they right. do, the discovery is not great of whole episodes or even within them. And I just thought it was such a tragedy that, most of the stuff that Naval has shared on Twitter and in podcasts is just in such a like difficult to access kind of subcultural, like ephemeral format. Um, and I spent, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been curating and assembling and editing and writing for a long time. And I was kind of between projects. I was like, all right, I'm going to go like, just throw this idea out there. Um, and I was like, you know, I said the tweet is so dumb. And I just put up a Twitter poll. I was like, if I wrote the book of Navalage and like compiled a few of his, important transcripts like do you want that um and like tweeted it and went to bed and i woke up to find that naval had retweeted it and like you know five thousand people were like oh my god yes please do this and naval was like i'm happy to provide you all the materials like rock on um and i i don't have any reason to believe that he knew who i was i had no connection or um kind of prior access or anything like that and um I mean, he gave me an export of his whole Twitter history and everything else was public record. Um, I just started right. doing transcripts of the podcast and interviews and the books and um, just kind of like threw it all on a table. And it's like, all right, let me like start kind of learning to condense this and make sense of it. And I mean, it was well over a million words of source material that I just kind of like started organizing and distilling and lumping into ideas and categories. And um, yeah, I just, I mean, I was excited to like swim around in all these ideas and like absorb them and learn them and, uh, spend time like reading and rereading and just do this giant, like weird conceptual jigsaw puzzle and make it easy for people to read and get these ideas in their own head and put it into a format that would last for, you know, hopefully decades and be relevant for people for a long time. I didn't realize how early in the project Naval got involved or like 
you know, yeah, gave his blessing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of, I have no idea. He, he was probably like, yeah, like, sure, go for it. Like, there's no chance you're right. actually going to finish it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, have, I have no idea. Um, but he's he's pretty like, you know, and then we, we kind of came to terms. He's like, make sure there's a, you know, um, free version available for everybody. And uh, make sure that it's clear that, like, I'm not selling it. I, Naval, am not right. earning money from it. Because um, it would be hypocritical to some of the material that's in the book. And, well, like, done and done. Like, Let's go. And it took me three years to finish it and publish it, <laughs> but it's uh, we got it out there, and I'm really I'm proud of it. And I think it's a really um, I like I really enjoy hearing that people got a lot out of it. I wish I'd had it at 18, um, but the next yeah. best thing is you know making sure that the next <laughs> next generation can have it and are better educated than we were. So uh, right. so that we all end up better off in the future. You know. Yeah. What are some of those other cool things that have come from it? You know, maybe unexpected. You go from, I'm going to throw out this random tweet and go to bed and then fast forward a few years and you're like, this, you know, this thing happened and it's because of what ultimately started with a, a tweet after a podcast episode. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a thousand little things, you know, um, just like getting DMs from people that are like, you know, I gave this to my 18 year old brother and like, it totally changed his life. Um, people who are like, it actually made me drop out of law school and like go become a software engineer. Cause I, I didn't. I didn't understand why technology was going to be, you know, so key. And, um, it, it's just, it's really interesting to hear, you know, it's a bunch of individual stories. I think, um, you know, it's been cool to like kind of come on podcasts and talk to people and meet them. And, um, I'm really excited about, um, with this format. Like, I think there's so much valuable stuff that's created in ephemeral digital mediums. And I think books just will always have a place. Um, and and that kind of transformation and that, that practice of curating things into like something really timeless and taking somebody's whole body of work and turning that into um, I, like this has always been my favorite genre of book, right? Like I, I love Peter Bevelin's books and I love the Porsche Always Almanac and the letters of Warren Buffett and um, like principles. I think like it's not everybody's going to sit down and write their own book and dedicate years to doing it. But I think the ability to kind of like condense someone's best advice and worldview and things into, into a book that someone can read in a few hours and like really get the experience of a lifetime um, is, is really cool and valuable. And I, I hope, you know, we see more of those. I certainly intend to keep, keep doing them. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, is there someone that you're working on? Uh, not, not that I can talk about yet, but, um, yeah. yeah, I got a, I got a new spreadsheet. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> another new million words of source material too. Yes. Yes. Another, a new million words. That's not intimidating at all. Um, <laughs> are there any numbers that you can share from like the, the book launch or something like that? I'm, I'm always curious how, like the scale of something like this, especially when it has the free version. And so even in number of like people who read it or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, we have like. The site, the page views on the site are, are like, I think well into the millions now, mm-hmm. um, or somewhere in the mid six figures for, uh, I think like digital downloads. Um, that's harder to track, but it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot. And then I assume a substantial number of people going like, I don't want the digital version. Like I'll take the, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean like, I think I've bought eight or 10 copies of, you know, of the book. And yeah. What's, what's like, 
impossible to answer is, is like what the effect, the net effect has been like, yeah. does the free version drive more sales? Like I've definitely have heard stories of people like I read the free version and I was a few chapters in and the, like, then I went and bought the physical version or I finished the free version. And I loved it. And so like I wanted as a trophy, a physical version or they read it and then they right. gift it or like whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's impossible to know, I think, but like, um, you know, my goal for this was just like, please, I, I hope it like gets back the cash that I put into like making it professional and like well-designed and well-published and um, it has done that and more. So I'm, I'm happy right. and, you know, Naval seems happy with it as a like representation of, of him. So like, I can't ask for more than that. Have there been like, did it result in more conversations and interaction with Naval over time or has he been pretty much like thumbs up from a distance? He's pretty thumbs up. Like, um, you know, we, we actually never spoke live about this. Like we did it all through email. Um, I kind of kept him updated and he was kind of like, cool, looks good. Like that's comprehensive. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot. Happening, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So no, I appreciate, um, I mean, he was, his support has been like super, super valuable. And I'm actually not sure yeah. that I would have felt good about doing it. Cause I like, there's this huge risk of kind of like putting words in his mouth. Um, and in opening him up to misinterpretation by just like recontextualizing all of this stuff, which is kind of like what I'm doing by definition. Um, so it's, uh, it took a lot of faith, I think. Um, and I, I appreciate the kind of trust he put in me there to do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see it's, uh, you know, if I can, I can be a positive, like piece of, people finding their way to him and understanding that better. Like that's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. And I'm excited for more of that format. Cause like you said, there's a lot of people who have this like wealth of knowledge and, and content, but that's not like packaged nicely that I can either read myself or like give to my brother or anything like that. <laughs> I can't wait to do the almanac of Nathan Barry. There you go. Uh, hopefully I'll be one of those people that like writes it all down myself rather than, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be down. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious, like, as we, as we wrap up, where should, well, first, what are you working on most right now? And then where should people go to, to follow you? Yeah. My, my main project right now is, um, a course on leverage. So, um, this is, this is all very top of mind for me. The biggest question I get from the books, people who read the leverage chapter and are kind of like, that's awesome. I totally get the importance of this idea, but like, I don't know how to apply it to my life. Um, and so, I kind of have been really distilling frameworks and ideas and collecting stories and like putting them all in this course um, that will launch soon. And it's kind of like quietly in beta letting people in as we get confident that like we got uh, the right kind of level of fidelity and, and things here. So um, that's, that's a huge focus for me right now. I'm really excited to be like building my first course and like getting to yeah. kind of put my hat in this like ring of education. And I think, um, I really am enjoying experimenting with like, I want to provide the flexibility and availability and like kind of perfectly available, uh, -ness of, a asynchronous, like evergreen course with a layer of kind of very light accountability and social connections, um, and community that comes with it. So I'm, I'm trying to pull the very best of like a high end, very expensive cohort based course and a like permanently available kind of evergreen course and like merge them into one here. Um, so it's a little bit of an experiment in medium and like getting to explore this topic that I really like. Uh, so that's really cool. Um, that's on my, on my website, ejorgensen.com. 
and uh i spend like way too much time on twitter so um if anybody wants to come hang out with me like i'm easy to find sounds good well thanks for coming on uh we'll both had our separate ways we've got stuff going on this evening but uh it was good to catch up and i'm excited to see the course come to life yeah great to talk to you i can't wait to to flip the mics and uh have you on my podcast and uh get to dive into more of the story i think i think you're gonna be a perfect like exemplar case study of intuition of leverage and building that ladder and i can't wait to dig into it i love it all right we'll chat soon all right later man